Welcome to I Took the High Road with Jacob Jansen. Our program is designed to educate about the drug problems that are reaching epidemic proportions in the United States. Could we be approaching the drug problem the wrong way? Mr. Jansen has been down the road of addiction, down the path of recovery, and now helps others find their path. Addicts are not bad people trying to get good. They're sick people needing to get well. Are you a part of the solution or the problem? Come and join us for an hour of fantastic guests, amazing stories, positive encouragement, and information that just might make your community a better place. Now, here is your host, Jacob Jensen. Hello and good morning. Welcome to I Took the High Road. I am your host, Jacob Jansen, and today's show is on drugs and intimate relationships for Valentine's Day. And I have to say uh, a little preemptively, happy Valentine's Day. So one of the first things that I want to talk about is there's this idea with opiates or heroin that you become married to the drug. And I wanted to explain a little bit uh, why they say that and, and how this process happens. Uh, when they say a person becomes married to the drug, it's because it starts taking over all different areas. It becomes the most important aspect in their life. And you kind of wonder, how does something like that happen? So what I did is I went online, I found a er- narrative uh, from an opiate addict that I think really well describes what it feels like to do heroin and how somebody falls in love with this drug. So here it goes. So what does it feel like to do heroin? Actually, this is an obvious question, but it's not what you might think. Let me explain it to you. I've been an opiate addict for a long time and tried many drugs. Drugs that are uppers have the most obvious euphoria. For example, you take coke, Adderall, meth, speed, MDMA, you will get a shining bright euphoria, self-confidence, energy, and other drug-specific feelings for meth, like you are the king, or for MDMA, like you love everyone. However, you owe these drugs back what they delivered to you. After a meth binge, or lots of MDMA use, or staying up all night on coke, you will feel like shit. To an extent, this aspect is similar to an alcoholic hangover. On the other hand, for many people who experiment with heroin, they are underwhelmed, not including IV usage, but most experimenters rarely ever IV first time. They just feel good, chill, happy, but they feel like the spooky drug heroin hasn't delivered. They are just mellow. Oh, obviously, it's all been a lie, they will think. Heroin isn't spooky. It's chill. It's not addictive like everyone else thinks. It doesn't make you do stupid shit or stay up all day and hallucinate like amphetamines or coke. It doesn't empty your serotonin like MDMA or give you a hangover like alcohol. People tend to just think, oh, what a nice drug. So the next day they wake up and everything is normal. No headache or shitty feeling. Just a slight afterglow of that nice feeling. Oh, it was cheap as well. It only cost $10 for a whole night of being high. I thought people said heroin was expensive. And then next weekend comes. There are all these drugs I could do, but I liked heroin. It didn't F me up. I could still think clearly. No hangover. No feeling of like shit later. I was still awake. It just made me happy and content with life. 
Oh, and it's only $10. Well, I should get some more for the whole weekend. This is great. I will use heroin on the weekends now. Now, let's say this person works and has responsibilities. He knows he can't go to work drunk or on MDMA or high, so he doesn't. It's actually simple, but heroin, well, the user might actually find they do better work on heroin. Instead of being sad or grumpy or depressed with his job, he is just happy, mellow, content. Everything is fine and the world is beautiful. It's raining. It's dark. I woke up at 5.30 a.m. I'm commuting in traffic. I would have had a headache. I would have been miserable. I would have wondered how my life took me to this point, this point I'm at right now. But no, no, everything is fine. Life is beautiful. The raindrops are falling, and each one, I see the reflection of every person's life around me. Humanity is beautiful. In this still frame shot of traffic on this crowded bus, I just found love and peace. Heroin is a wonder drug. Heroin is better than everything else. Heroin makes me wish who I was. Heroin makes life worth living. Heroin is better than everything else. Heroin builds up a tolerance fast. Heroin starts to cost more money. I need heroin to feel normal. I don't love anymore. Now I'm sick. I can't afford the heroin that I need. How did $10 used to get me high? Now I need 100 That guy that let me try a few lines the first time doesn't actually deal. Oh, now I need to find a real dealer? This guy's a felon and carries a gun. He can sell me that drug that lets me find love in the world. No, this isn't working. I need to quit. To answer your question, heroin feels nice. That's all. It just feels very nice. You can make the rest up for yourself. Attach your own half-truths to this drug that will show you the world, and for a moment you will feel as clever as Faust. Um, now, I thought that was a really good narrative on how it pulls somebody in. It's a very slow, insidious process. Most people don't realize uh, the damage it's causing before it's too late. So I want to introduce my next guest today, and we're going to talk, uh, like I said, about drugs and intimate relationships for this Valentine's Day. Uh, his name is Dan Bird, and he has an undergraduate degree undergraduate degree with a double major in psychology and sociology from the University of La Crosse. He has a master's from the University of Wisconsin. Mr. Bird did his licensing hours at Milwaukee Psychiatric Hospital, Dewey Center, and Harrington House, which were inpatient, outpatient, long-term treatment facilities. He has a state license as both a professional counselor and substance abuse counselor, and he has worked in the chemical dependency field for 27 years, specializing working with family members of the addict, alcoholic, and the treatment of codependency, specifically with parents, children, spouse, or significant others. Dan Bird, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jake. Sure. So the first question that I wanted to ask is, how and why did you decide to, to get into this field? What, what made you want to do this? Well, it's, uh, I don't think I had the passion until I began working in it, uh, in the field. Uh, truthfully, I was, uh, in, in my graduate classes, were, was instructed that you probably need background in both family and substance abuse because it's so prevalent in any work you do. So you really need that background. And so I kind of took it from there and began to uh, do more uh, um, take more classes in that area and began to work in the field. And that's when I really fell in love with uh, helping people with substance abuse and, and their families. There really is something gratifying about being able to help their families see a loved one through a very difficult time. 
When we talk about uh, couples counseling, and you know, I've talked about uh, codependency in a family, specifically with parents. And in this episode, I want to focus more on intimate relationships and the significant other. So, in that respect, who would be the right type of couple who could benefit from couples counseling? Well, I think, uh, well, generally, any couple can benefit in, in terms of either you know improving or enhancing the relationship. Uh, but with codependency. Um, I think oftentimes it's, it's most beneficial if there's some work done separately, assuming that the dependent person has, has put some work into their recovery uh, and is, is able to now focus on something other than just their recovery and we can begin to uh, kind of work on those what we call the stage two uh, and that being their relationships. Uh, for the codependent, it's really no different. They also need to kind of work on themselves for a period of time to kind of sort out uh, where they end and, and their partner begins and to get that line established and then begin doing themselves some, some work uh, uh, and then getting into the couple's work from there. So, You, know, you, you talked about uh, setting that line or that boundary. How is that done? How, how do you establish that for a connection? When do we say now they're okay to come back and start talking with each other again? Uh, you know, I think you kind of get a feel for it. Uh, you, you know, you, you obviously – uh, have worked with them, maybe uh, uh, spoke with the other therapist who might be working with the dependent person. Um, uh, you always want to keep those separate, by the way. You know, you don't do work with the dependent person and with the codependent person. Uh, otherwise, you you know, the boundaries get really blurred. But uh, that being said, um, you know, I think for the most part, uh, other than having a feel for it, you really have to talk to to the to the couple and see. Um, you know, are they established in their own recoveries and are, are they ready to begin to work on, on the couple, the, the relationships within their relationship? One of the things that I heard you say that I thought was kind of interesting is you said you don't work with the dependent and codependent person at the same time. You usually refer one to a different therapist. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, otherwise, if I'm, for instance, if I'm talking to the codependent and I'm, you know, asking them to, um, you know, to establish some boundaries and not enable well, the dependent person might take offense to that because if if that codependent is no longer enabling them, they don't like that. They they want the softer path, and when the codependent starts to uh, stand up for him or herself, um, that's really a conflict. And so they oftentimes want to blame the therapist for directing the codependent in making the changes that are ultimately very helpful to the relationship, but. At some point, uh, the dependent person might feel very, uh, very put upon when you when sure. you start to establish those boundaries. So there's there's communication uh, between the counselors, but not necessarily with the counselor and the two individuals per se. Correct, correct, and and oftentimes even when you've worked with the codependent, for instance, somebody else has worked with the dependent person. You might even suggest either couples work with both therapists or refer them to a third therapist. Now, you mentioned the term codependency, and we've described it a couple times on the show in the past. What is your definition of codependency, and how do you help break codependency behavior if they're involved in an intimate relationship? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I think everybody might define it differently. I think when I mentioned before about that blurred line, um, it's, a codependent person doesn't oftentimes know where where they stop and the next person begins, so much is tied into their self-esteem. And um, they're oftentimes, the self-esteem is impacted when the dependent person isn't happy 
or it seems to be falling out of the relationship due to their dependency of their, their drug and alcohol use. So the codependent is wrapped up in that person, the dependent person, being happy. And so they go out of their way to do everything to make that person happy, which makes them feel good. Oftentimes you'll find codependents are in the helping fields. There'll be nurses, they'll they'll be doctors, they'll they'll be therapists. Mm-hmm. And because they're good at helping and their self-esteem is derived from helping. Mm-hmm. But it's so important to find for them to figure out, you know, that there's a difference between taking care of and caring for the dependent person. And they gotta switch from taking care of them to just caring for and being there for them in a way that feels very foreign to them. They're what they thought was love was enabling. Mm-hmm. And when they find out or have to determine that, no, that's not, that's not really helping the person, they have to redefine what helping is. And it's very different, very mm-hmm. foreign and very uncomfortable for them. Yeah, it is. I, you know, when I deal with a lot of families um, doing interventions and the parents and things, you know, the addict's best chance is the family's education, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the family and helping them understand about the disease addiction and what is enabling codependency. Um, and it's really hard for them to break that idea that the things that they're doing are not helping, they're really hurting. Yeah, uh, it, it is a family disease and everybody needs to get help. If everybody, if that dependent person and uh, has to give them the best chance of recovery, you really do need to involve, to involve the you know the significant people in their life and help sure. them to change. Sure. One of the things um, that I deal with a lot uh, is is denial in relationships, or the denial of the person has a serious enough problem to want to do something about it. How do you break through a spouse's denial? You know, if the other one's problem. You know, it's, it's, I think sometimes we, our role is somewhat of a prophet because we've got the experiences and, um, the education and understand addiction. Um, oftentimes we're able to almost tell them about their life without them opening their mouth because the stories are the same. You know, the circumstances change, but, but there's so many similarities between, um, the families that, that when you start to talk to them and, and almost, uh, tell them, you know, you know that I, I understand that this has probably happened, and this is probably they kind of their mouth goes open, wide open, and they're like, "How did you know that?" Mm-hmm. It's because well, it's because you're codependent. It's because you're with a person who's dependent on alcohol or drugs. Um, so when you start to talk to them uh, on that level, they they begin to understand that that while I I this is something that others have suffered from. Getting them to an Al-Anon meeting or Families Anonymous meeting is a wonderful way for them to, uh, again, you can say, yeah, I belong, you know, I understand others have this. Mm-hmm. Until they're at a meeting, that's when they really get the support, number one, um, outside of my office, um, but also begin to feel like they belong, that they're not alone in this. Another good resource for families out there, there's a, a company called Family Recovery Resources that does uh, 24-7, 365 uh, days a year help for parents. It's all online, lots of different classes that they can do. Um, we got to take a quick commercial break from our sponsors, but when we come back, more with Dan Bird on love and intimate relationships with drugs. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? 
Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this, providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org. So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Hello and welcome back. You are listening to I Took the High Road and I am your host, Jacob Jansen. Today, uh, we have licensed uh, drug and alcohol therapist or counselor, uh, Dan Bird, with us. And we're talking about love, or drugs, and intimate relationships. Before the break, we were talking about codependency uh, a little bit. Dan, why is it so difficult for a codependent person to change their behavior? Well, I think it's it's so ingrained in them to help others that it's very difficult to, to shift that into something else, and, and particularly when they don't know what that something else would even look like. Um, oftentimes, you find generationally that, uh, for instance, a woman may have had an alcoholic father and then turns around and marries an alcoholic spouse. Uh, even if that, I've even seen situations where that spouse wasn't even drinking at the time that they met and began dating and developed alcoholism later. Mm-hmm. So there, there are some traits there that, that feel right, feel very comfortable to, uh, for that person and they find them in, in the person that they ultimately marry. So from a very early age, from the time they're born, they may have watched their mother 
uh, act in a codependent way towards their father and have grown up grown up to do the same and as I'd mentioned maybe even work in a helping field so when that's all they know um, where that is oftentimes where they derive their self-esteem and their self-worth um, it's it's difficult to to ask them to give that up because uh, they have to find something to put in its place. They have to redefine themselves, get their self-esteem from something else. And when you're doing that with a person, a dependent person, um, who's resistant to that, uh, you can imagine how difficult it is for that person to give up so much of who they are and not know who they're going to be and be taking the flack from perhaps the dependent person when they begin to change. Um, because obviously that's not helping their self-esteem when they're being put down for, um, you know, um, not allowing them to, to drink in the home or um, calling the police on them or something to that effect. Very interesting. You know, as you were saying, a, a lot of the codependent people are helping people. Uh, you know, my mom's a nurse, you know, so and I deal with a lot of uh, women, you know, as an interventionist, it's typically the women who call it's the men who, you know, the women have to go back and talk to the husband and make the decision then with them. Uh, but there was a point, you know, I think when the parent's behavior did change when it kind of went, we're going to try and get you out of trouble to enough is enough. And we're going to try and get you the help you need. Um, and I am really so glad they stuck with me through that, that process and was able to make it out. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, so we talked about, you know, the denial that comes in some of the relationships. What are some of the other issues, you know, the couples face uh, with drugs and alcohol, some of the resistance maybe that you face as a counselor dealing with that? Well, I think uh, I'll answer that in, in that there, there are so many similarities, not just the denial between the alcoholic, for instance, or the addict and the dependent or the codependent person. There are so many similarities beyond denial. There's been some research done in terms of the impact on the stress levels. And uh, there's even been a study in terms of uh, the uh, damage to the esophagus, for instance, for a drinker who purges. Um, and similarly, the codependent who is not a drinker can also have s similar esophagus problems and that's from obviously the reflux. So you're saying relationships can be stressful? Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, and, and and add to that, uh, just any relationship can be stressful. But add to it a chemical dependency issue, and oh my goodness, it's it's uh, it's difficult. It's very difficult. So getting the, you know, I think that's what keeps the codependent involved is. Um, involved in the therapy is they do find that it relieves some of that stress. And if you can relieve some of that stress, they, they find they find there's some benefit to being there. Um, and that comes from the support. It comes from the education. It comes from helping them to understand that there's a different way to help. It's going to feel foreign. And I think, as you mentioned, so many women are the ones who approach you. And I think, you know, women's have this maternal instinct to help. Mm -hmm. And when you try to teach them to help in a way that feels so much not like helping. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like nurturing. You know, here's this dependent person. All they need is their bottle or their drug, and they're going to feel better. That's nurturing uh, to a codependent. And to change that philosophy and say, no, actually the opposite, the very opposite thing you think is nurturing and helpful to that dependent person is actually the opposite. And so it's really, it's, it's, a, it's a tug of war sometimes. And it may be someone steps forward, two steps back in trying to get them to uh, change a behavior, a lifelong behavior. I want to ask, do you think it's more difficult to change um, 
an active user who's actively using or a codependent person? I think it's the same. I wouldn't. Same. That's how similar I think they are to each other. I wouldn't put it uh, make it any different. I think the the um, you know there's so much beyond just stopping using. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of in particular relationships and uh, learning who they are, and it's similar for the for the codependent. So I would have to say that that it's a struggle either way. Um, I think while with the dependent person, it's something you know, something tangible you can put your hand on this drug or or that bottle. Um, it's not that way with the with the codependent. It's a more clear right and wrong. Exactly, it's black and white. Yeah. Um, but again, that's just the initial part, you know, mm-hmm. the abstaining, and then the recovery begins, and and all the work that goes into that, and all the work on the relationship that needs to happen. For my relationship. Communication has, you know, been one of the lasting keys to making it last 15 years through nine years of opiate dependency. What else makes a successful relationship and in turn a more successful recovery? It's a good question. I the and and that's awesome that your relationship is is, is thriving. Thank you. Um, the, you know, I think. You know, I, I think there's some value, and this is going to sound kind of contrary to what I've been talking about, but I think there's some value to having a. Uh, codependent who has the tolerance, just as you may have developed a tolerance for your drugs or alcohol, uh, who has a tolerance for your behavior and can can tolerate that behavior long enough for you to get better rather than to, to walk away and, and, and run. Uh, I've worked with and, and ran many uh, codependency groups, which, by the way, are the most fun, uh, entertaining, um, delightful uh, caring, loving people—you can imagine. Not the adjectives I would have would have expected. But, <laughs> you know, it's, well, I can tell you, they uh, one group I had uh, literally threw a, a baby shower for me. They walked me down uh, with my eyes blindfolded to an outside area where they at the Dewey Center, where they uh, they uh, unveiled. Uh, all of them surprised me with with gifts for my newborn, uh, and and that's what a codependent would do. I I had another uh, group where the the first codependent meeting, I said okay, and we had a new group room or the group room needed work. I said all right, you guys, I'm just going to sit back, and I want you to just decorate. There's some some frames, some pictures on the you know leaning up against the wall. You guys decorate this. I'm just going to sit back and observe. And it was neat to see who was going to who was going to take the leadership role, who was going to be passive, how are they going to work together? And they were all about making it into a nice room for themselves. I mean, I had one woman bring a, you know a coffee table and a big plant to the next meeting. I mean, and and so with that comes the learning that you got to back down on that a little bit. And it's awesome. At, they're all looking at you for this positive, great reaction. <laughs> exactly. Right? You know, look like, what I've done. Say, look what know. I've done. Look yeah. how good I feel about myself. You know, my self esteem because I've I've just helped this room and this and this and this therapist. Mm-hmm. And so there, the learning begins because no, while I appreciate it, it's it's what if you hadn't done that? How would you have felt? You know, would you have been so compelled to do that that it, you would have felt uncomfortable or miserable? You know, is it, is it so much a part of you? You know, because your value is beyond what you bring to this room tonight. It isn't just about, you know, the plant you brought in with your with your smile and, mm-hmm. and, and the, the, the joy you saw in the other group members. It's more than that. It's about you as a person and you don't need to. Be. It's kind of like, I guess, the, you know, as a standard, oftentimes people bring a gift when they're invited over for dinner, a bottle of wine or, or you know, a box of candy or mm-hmm. something to that effect. And um, almost is, is a nice gesture, but I think for some... It's um, 
they I don't think they feel that they can show up empty handed like that would be enough. Do you think you know when we talk about uh, codependency with a loved one? Do you think that really stems from being battered down from this disease? You know, getting. Uh, beaten down a bit so now they're looking at others emotions I mean, is, is that a driving force I, I think it is I think it is but, but as I said I think sometimes it's generational okay. and so they've they've been this way their entire life and so they're drawn to the person that they can fix um, and because that that's what makes them feel good if the person and I think they thrive on on the chaos um, and oftentimes you'll when talking with a codependent you'll find out that that a normal person, say a person who's bland, you know, comes home every time, every night at the same time, you know, doesn't vary much from a from a schedule or routine, is considered boring to the codependent. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said about perhaps if they came from a lot of chaos that they feel comfortable in chaos and they look for chaos in their new relationships. And you know, the status quo is not good enough. They they want something that that uh, you know puts a few bumps in the road for them. That's, that's considered normal for them. It's interesting because addicts are certainly risk takers. You know, I was a hedge fund manager in my early 20s, and if that's not the definition of taking risk, you know, I don't know what is. Right. So, um, why do you think drugs and alcohol cause problems in intimate relationships? Well, it, it really is that barrier, oftentimes just emotionally, because the drugs um, kind of stifle the, the, the addict's or alcoholics' um, ability to express their feelings. I think initially, you know, they may have a drink or two, or, or take a pill or something, and, and they they may feel more loving. Um, uh, but ultimately, that diminishes, and they become more closed up and less able to feel. Um, I think feelings can be difficult for a couple. I think because, um, for instance, the, the the codependent might be comfortable with the fact that the dependent person really doesn't express themselves emotionally, and that's safe. And uh, there's something to be said about the safe, dependent person. They don't have to worry about becoming too attached, too in love with a person that is so dependent, and it's safe for them. The real risks come when that person begins to recover and begins to reach past that barrier into developing that relationship, that intimate relationship, that they now have to take risks themselves and put it on the line. And for instance, if they came from a family where, let's say, the dad wasn't available, the the codependent, the daughter, for instance, in this case, may have realized that, you know, my dad's not available. I'm going to stop putting my emotions out there to get stomped on. And here's this man now that I can marry who doesn't really put his emotions out there, and he's safe. And I don't have to worry about feeling too much for him um, in, in, for danger of him with his addiction now leaving with that. Um, oftentimes in my, in my groups, I'll find that um, – the real resentment for the codependent person oftentimes is when that person gets their dependent person gets better and the relationship is struggling because now it's all different you know different rules games changed and nothing fits the way it did before and their da- their fear is always that okay now he got better i was with him through all the hardship through all the difficulty and now he's going to leave me you know where when do i get my reward when do i get the finished product finished product he's 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 still in the works here but he's getting better and now now the relationship is in danger and he may leave me 
and all the work I've put in, and I'm not going to get any of the reward. And that's a real fear for them. Yeah, I, I can certainly relate. You know, in my situation with the relationship, we were both users, and we were probably both codependent and fed off each other in those ways. Uh, but we got to treatment, and I was, you know, in my treatment facility 30 days in, and we got back together and realized this is really awkward. You know, mm-hmm. she came with the ring off, we were engaged, and said. I don't know if this is going to work now. And we had to, it took another three months working on ourselves and talking back and forth and hanging out before we actually felt comfortable again, which is weird because we were together for nine or 10 years before we decided to quit. And then all of a sudden, this one month break, and it's a totally different person. It's a new ball game, for sure. You have to relearn that. Yeah. There's a good book by uh, Ernie Larson called Stage Two Recovery. And it's about the more the the um, you know the the finer points of recovery and how it relates to relationship. Hmm. And it's um, once you get the recovery, uh, sort of kind of under wraps, or, or if you can ever really do that, but it, it becomes less of the primary issue, um, and you can begin to delve into the relationship. It's a good book to help you to to um, begin to explore that and, and make the changes necessary. Because you're right, it's all new territory. It's very uncomfortable. Um, many of the relationships begin under using pretenses, and mm-hmm. and now you, you're meeting this first this person maybe for the first time in many respects. I've been told, you know, it, in, and we know the statistics that you know, especially with opiate use, it's low success rates. The chances are usually against you than in your favor. Um, my fiance was also able to make it, you know, out of this cycle as a couple. Have you ever seen that before? Is that something that's very rare? I mean, what are the statistics on active couples that are using? I mean, or do we not want to put a number on it and just say that if <laughs> well, you put in enough work, you can do it? Well, I, I like that. I like the optimism. I think it is difficult. I, I know, uh, for instance, if you have one dependent person, that that marriage surviving um, is is about four times less. So wow. you, you you have uh, you know that much less of a chance of of, of the marriage working. If you have a dependent person, um, the the tricky part because I think dependent persons are often, as you mentioned, codependent as well. Uh, there's been times uh, in, in inpatient units that I've worked where the dependent person comes in for treatment and uh, they get better and and they leave treatment. And about that time, the codependent now needs to come in for help, and they've been busy picking up the dependent person and getting them well that they're exhausted and they need the help now. And so then the codependent person is in treatment and the dependent person is out of treatment and you find the dependent person now scooping up to try and pick up the codependent and for instance, and get them into treatment. So it, it, it can be this cyclical thing of, of, of not putting their own needs first. And that's a hard thing to do because there is for the codependent, they're so committed to that relationship. The thought of leaving that relationship is, is almost unbearable, no matter how dramatically impaired it is. And so to get them to, um, to make that decision, not to get them to, but, uh, to help them come to a decision about that is, is very difficult. You mentioned the family getting treatment after the addicted individual. And when I send people to treatment facilities and we'll talk to them, I do have to remind them that, remember, you're focusing on yourself for 30 days and Mm -hmm. fixing your issue while your family member is trying to control your life and keep everything going along with theirs. So give them a break when they get home. Deal with some of this bullshit because you've put them through enough of, you know, yourself. Give Mm -hmm. them a break and... uh, 
and and let them see the changes through the actions that you're doing and and understand why they're being maybe so overbearing or questioning at times. Yeah. Well, even a, a good example is is the dependent person <coughs> comes home from treatment and uh, they're considering, you know, they, they're they're contemplating going to a meeting that night, and the the child's crying, needs a bath, the mom's trying to get dinner going, and uh, and there's a lot of stress in the home. And his first thought is, okay, I need to stick around and 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 help. I need to do my part here because I've been absent mm-hmm. with my addiction for so long. It's time for me to step up. In reality, the real thing that they should be doing is they should be getting to that meeting. And I think most codependent wives will will really appreciate that, even though they know they're they're left with some stressors. Um, they're going to feel better knowing that that person has gone to a meeting. Now they may not trust that they've gone to the meeting. That's a whole other issue. But you know, there's that to deal with. Uh, obviously, the trust issues, but. Um, but getting to their meetings has got to be their priority. Uh, staying, you know, if they lose their recovery, they lose it all anyway. You got to find some path for recovery. Everyone's recovery is different. And on that note, we got to take another quick commercial break from our sponsors. But when we get back, more with drugs and intimate relationships with Dan Bird. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23 year old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. You are listening to I Took the High Road, and I am your host, Jacob Jansen. Today's show is on drugs and intimate relationships uh, with licensed professional counselor Dan Bird. Uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, codependency and what it was, some of the issues that uh, he faces with couples counseling. Now, Dan, when you're dealing with an addicted individual, how do you get the family in to talk with you? Um, I'll say this, that oftentimes the addict alcoholic will be resistive um, to having you um, bring that spouse, say, in because um, they don't want that tampered with. You know, that's, uh, that's, they don't know, they may not trust you yet to, to, to think that you're going to help. Or in many respects, they don't want you to further burden that spouse who they're now realizing in, in, in waves how much they may have burdened or their addiction may have burdened their loved one. So they sometimes feel it's, it's a burden. And so when I talk to the addict, I have to kind of explain, you know, that I'm really, that they need help too, that they've been through a lot and they need their support. Um, and that I also need their perspective on things. You only have your perspective as an addict and alcoholic and oftentimes that's skewed. So um, you need some, some, another perspective on it and I'll have the, the, the spouse, for instance, in this case of family members come in and share that, that end of things. So I heard, you know, that saying there's a lot of resistance usually from the addicted individual, either because they don't want the, their system that they've had in place to fall apart or they don't want to put another burden on it. Do you ever find resistance from the families wanting to come in and talk to you uh, once the addict gives you the okay? Sure. Um, well, being a good codependent, they want to help. So they're, they're mostly willing to come in. Um, I think emotionally they're, they may be so fragile that it's difficult for them to come in. So there is that battle, I think, that they hold or have within themselves. But, but generally, that it's unfortunately, maybe in some respects, going to override that they're going to come in for that person. Maybe not for themselves but for that, that dependent person. And so that's what brings them in. Once they're then, there, then it's a matter of uh, really helping, educating them, finding, finding out how you might be able to, to, um, to help roll with their resistance where they may not uh, necessarily want to, want to go in terms of um, considering the relationship and major changes in that relationship, but getting them to own their own codependency, getting them to... Um, to see where maybe some, in some respects, they weren't helping when they really thought they were, which is hard to hear, um, and then getting them to focus on themselves, and and that's always obviously the challenge. And when you can get both the recovering person now and and the codependent both focusing on themselves individually, um, then that's an excellent time to begin to do the couples work. I think, you know, that that seems like a, a big challenge that I deal with, too, is getting the family to understand really how this is beneficial, how this is going to help that person. Um, I want to switch gears just a little bit here uh, and, and talk about 
when it crosses the line in a relationship, when you go too far, uh, you know, one of those things, uh, when a relationship uh, might be stressed, anger comes out. You know, what is anger management and how is it, you know, an effective tool in couples counseling? Well, I think there's always going to be a degree of, of anger, um, how it exerts itself or presents itself, I guess, is it can be very different in, within different, different relationships and, and families. Um, you know, there's you've changed something that has been working, I guess, for them <laughs> to some degree for a long time, and you're coming in really throwing a wrench into the works. Uh, you know, when you think about what anger is, anger is really a frustration, um, nicer or maybe a harsher word for frustration, but it's a frustration. And all frustration is 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 things not going the way we want them to go, and that could be the person going 50 in, in the left lane on the highway uh, when you're in a hurry or or it could be, you know, the person who uh, personally always bothers me when you when you see somebody writing a check in the, in the checkout line at, at the grocery store, um, and then putting the totals into their account and into the tabulations. Um, so you know, it, it's those frustrations, and and so when you begin to change the system, a system that needs that dysfunctional system, uh, you're going to get that resistance. Now, certainly, you know, the the codependent. When that person is coming home, say, under the influence, the codependent is hurt. They take it very personal that, why won't you quit for me? Why aren't you, um, you know, can't you think enough about me and your family to not drink? And so they don't understand the disease. They don't understand just how uh, cunning, baffling it can be. Mm-hmm. And and so oftentimes you have the dependent person who's really just trying to balance their family and their drinking and, and bargaining. How can I have my family and my alcohol or drugs too? And that's a, that is a, an ongoing battle. So when, when, when the codependent, for instance, throws a wrench into it and says, you know, and, and has an argument with them, obviously tempers can flare and, and things can happen. Uh, some of the latest research on domestic violence, for instance, and uh, substance abuse, which is a hot topic now. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, they say, uh, um, you know, anywhere from 40 to 90% of domestic violence involves alcohol or drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some later or some newer research that's uh, kind of challenging that a bit. Uh, in one article, they, they describe it as, as really um, there's many other factors that are contributing to uh, to that um uh, domestic violence occurrence, and it could be you know such things as is you know socioeconomic, um, how they were raised, what what they saw in their family, how they handle anger, um, and yes, I think substance abuse can be a conduit, an elixir to that. I I, I think there are many other factors that can contribute to that, um, but it, you know, in, in that being said. Um, it's it's certainly an issue that that is grabbing attention and, and needs to be addressed and and our clinics um, are are one of the um, the counties only mandated or um, meeting the criteria necessary for domestic violence treatment for that perpetrator. I heard you mention you know when a codependent becomes frustrated either with life or the situation at hand. What does a loved one need to know if they're in that situation? If somebody's drive, you know, going along and they're frustrated because their significant other's using and they don't know what to do, what do they need to hear? Oftentimes that person will come in before uh, the dependent person has come in. 
Um, and so they're looking to um, to make changes. And, and while they'd like to focus on the dependent person and getting him help, um, oftentimes they need to work on themselves long enough to be ready to insist on change um, or make ultimatums, establish boundaries and limit setting with that addict or alcoholic. I think you know in interventions um, certainly that 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 family member it's only as, the, the the family is only as strong as its weakest link and if there uh is a, a for instance a spouse who's more likely to give in um and and not follow the intervention strategies well then you know all is lost in a sense and so that dependent person or that codependent person I should say really needs to develop the strength and the independence um to resist their urges to enable this might be a hypothetical question, may not have an answer, but, you know, maybe, uh, why can't we change other people's behavior? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't know? that be nice if everybody <laughs> would just do what we want them to do? Yeah. yeah. Is it difficult to get that concept across to codependent people that you're not going to change their behaviors, but you can focus on yourself? Uh, the kind of my mantra when working with codependents is you didn't cause it and you can't fix it. And, and both of those are very important because they feel to blame. Maybe if I was a better spouse, kept a cleaner house, um, kept the kids quiet, he wouldn't drink. He wouldn't do drugs. He'd come home at night. Uh, if I was you know, better uh, intimately with them, they just wouldn't find the need to go out and drink. And so that's a hard concept for them to grasp that it really has very little to do with them at all. Um, just as in with domestic violence, that that's not really about the spouse. Um, and the other part is they can't fix it. They need to recognize that that's not their job and their job is to work on themselves. And again, a hard concept to, to really grasp because, um, that's so against their nature. Their nature is to fix and to feel good about fixing. And when they realize it's not within their power and that it's only the dependent person's, uh, power to, to really, um, uh, work on that, then, you know, I think there come, can come some relief. But it's a struggle where you would think, oh, man, I'm dangling this carrot. You can have relief. You can, you can let go of trying to fix that, that person. Um, you know, how would that feel? And yet it's scary. It's a, it's, a new, it's a new zone for them that is very difficult for them. Now, you're a half owner in Alliance Counseling Center, and Alliance Counseling Center has quite a wide breadth and scope of programs they offer. Can you speak a little bit more about how you help uh, couples or a, an addicted individual uh, find the help they need through Alliance sure. Counseling? Sure. What do you offer? Um, we have a number of therapists that that are both uh, um, work both in mental health and in substance abuse, and um, as well as those that specialize in substance abuse and those that specialize in mental health, as well as our domestic violence program. Uh, oftentimes, you know, I'll have somebody come in and, and then, um, uh, you know, in that session with the dependent person, um, we'll start to talk about the spouse. And in that, um, we'll ultimately try to get that spouse in and help get them going. Now, not with me in that case, but mm-hmm. with maybe one of our other therapists. And I'll continue with the, the, co- with the dependent person. Likewise, I may have a call from a codependent person who's saying, I don't know what to do. And I'll have that person in, and ultimately we'll try to get that other person in, the dependent person, and get them the help they need. But, but we'll focus then on, on the mental health issues, the depression, the anxiety, you know, the sleeplessness, mm-hmm. the issues that are plaguing the, uh, the codependent person. 
if someone wants more information on Alliance Counseling Center, how could they get it? Uh, they could go to our website at www.alliancecounselingcenter.com. Uh, on there, they can find a link to myself or to any of our other therapists. They can read the bios on what we offer from each of the individual therapists and contact them. Uh, there's a link, hot link to their phone number and uh, or email, and they can contact us directly. Each of us have our own phones um, as well as there's a general number that they can call and, and kind of get triaged into uh, one of the other therapists. We have about three minutes left to the end of the show here. What's your final message for uh, any couples out there, listeners, or people going through addiction or codependency? What's the final message? Well, I I think hope uh, would be um, at the top of the list uh, that while it's a a hard process and there's a lot of aches and pains that go with it, uh, recovery for the entire family is possible. Um, that everybody needs to make changes, and if they do so, you've just bettered your odds of of the family uh, and the addict succeeding and the family uh, staying intact. And um, while that seems sometimes daunting, it it certainly is achievable, but it's going to take hard work. Um, and um, you know, a lot of rocks turned over for perhaps, and and skeletons pulled out of the closets and. And um, rehashing some of the some of the past histories, and and from there, then letting go of it and developing the trust again anew from the start, day one, you know, uh, and 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 taking the risk to love somebody uh, who has hurt you, mm-hmm. um, who has betrayed you, uh, and trying to find a way to to get better. And that's a big one, you know, trying to figure out how much confidence do you put in this person. Right, right. And so that's, it's kind of a, you know, wait and see. There's, there's a, a trait of hypervigilance among uh, the codependent where they are like, uh, you know, like the most sophisticated radar uh, and they, they know when something's not right. They can feel it. Uh, and yet they couldn't explain to you why they think maybe their spouse has relapsed or on the verge of relapse, but they just know it. Thank you so much for being here, Dan. I appreciate your time. You bet, Jake. Thanks for having me. And that's about all the time we have today for our show. So uh, please join us next week for another great show. Uh, Thank you and enjoy life. Thank you for listening to I Took the High Road. Please join Jacob Jansen for another encouraging hour next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you next week.